The Gospel lesson is written in the 10th chapter of Matthew, beginning at the 28th verse. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. (coughs) Christ is speaking here. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the winter of 1968, The girls at Washington Junior High School in Rock Island, Illinois, were all eagerly reading the same novel. I was one of them. The book had been a bestseller in the 1930s, but three three decades later, we were devouring it as hungrily as if it were hot off the presses. When the classic film made from the book came to the old movie palace downtown, we went as a group to see it. This is a still from the movie. Do you know this story? What's it called? Since so many of you seem to know the story, I hope you know the plot well enough to get this next bit. Uh, By the time I got around to reading Gone with the Wind, most of my friends had already finished it. I was behind the curve, but no less enthralled once I got into the book. One day in the school cafeteria, I was snatching a couple of moments over lunch to get through a few pages. I was only halfway through the book when another girl at the lunch table asked me a question about the pivotal moment at the end of the book. This is what she said. Did you get to the part yet where Melanie dies? (laughs) Melanie dies, really. (laughs) Nowadays, we have a phrase to prevent such unfortunate situations, to warn of a plot-revealing moment, but that term didn't exist yet in the 1960s. What's that term? Spoiler Spoiler alert. A useful and sometimes important phrase. While this useful warning didn't exist yet in the mid-20th century, there are other phrases that were in common use then. In many cases, these expressions are rarely used anymore. Remember when bread was money, fuzz was the police, and a wet rag with somebody who's no fun. Such lingo is now out of fashion. These are things you rarely hear anymore. Here's another term 
seldom used, God-fearing. As in, God-fearing Christians. This used to be regarded as a true and positive description of a Christian believer. Many people today, though, struggle with the concept of fearing God, even though it's a concept in terminology right out of Scripture and embraced throughout Christian history. Nowadays, more folks are comfortable with saying, God is love, and just leaving it there, period. The Bible, though, insists that we are to fear God and to love him. Not only do these two things not conflict, but they are necessary to each other. References to the fear of God occur many times in Scripture. It's a phrase easily misunderstood, though, because to fear something or someone brings to mind the impulse to flee or avoid that something or someone. Yet this fear of the Lord is closely connected in the Bible with a true and abiding love of the Lord. While these concepts may seem contradictory, let's look at how Scripture links the two to get a clearer picture. Psalm 147.11 puts it this way, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So here we have fear and love in the same sentence. Both fear and love arise from knowing who our Lord is. The problem with our English word fear is that for many people it conjures up such negative imagery. When our English translations of the Bible use our word fear, we don't get a sense of the wealth of meaning that this word encompassed in the original scriptures. It had a broader meaning encompassing very positive feelings of honor and respect and reverence and worshipful awe. So a biblical understanding of the phrase fear of the Lord is a reverence for God that allows us to grow in intimate knowledge of him. It reassures us of his power and control over the world, and it gives us a respect for his law that keeps us from sins that destroy relationships and lives. Have you ever had a sense of spine-tingling awe, feeling God's powerful presence? This is the kind of worshipful wonder we're talking about here. In this sense, having fear of God is one of the most profound spiritual experiences of our lives. To fear the Lord is the ultimate expression of knowing that we stand in the presence of a holy and almighty God. It means to always be reminded that God watches and to be reassured of his awesome power over the world 
does mean to recognize his disapproval of our sin, but the emphasis is on a reverential, positive relationship with God, not on being terrified of him. Luther distinguished between what he called a servile fear and a filial fear. Servile fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has for his tormentor. It's a dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened of threatening danger, the kind of fear a slave would have for an evil and malicious master who comes with the whip to torment him. Servile fear refers to a situation of servitude at the hands of a cruel master. Now, Luther distinguished between that and what he calls filial fear. In this case, Luther's thinking of family life and a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father. That child trusts in his father's great and unswerving love and dearly wants to please him. The child does not want to offend the one he loves. And that's not because he's afraid of punishment. Instead, the child wants to please the father, the source of security and love. We, children of the Heavenly Father, should have filial fear, not servile fear. We know God loves us, and we trust in that. When we speak of being God-fearing, the focus is on a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. We should maintain a healthy reverence and adoration for our Lord, a sense of his majesty. But we also embrace the truth of his love for us, and so we desire to please him in all we do. Luther built a wonderful and memorable repetition into his explanation of the Ten Commandments. For each one of the Ten Commandments, Luther provides a separate explanation. And every time he begins with these words, we are to fear and love God. When we use the word fear, in connection with our Almighty Lord, it tends to make modern people squirm, though, doesn't it? But we remember he is the Almighty, and there is a consequence to rejecting the Lord. This, of course, brings the specter of judgment and hell into the mind. Hell, too, is an unpopular concept in the current age but it is a truth repeatedly testified to in Scripture. So, how does Jesus feel about hell? If you're thinking all that condemnation and hell stuff is mostly in the Old Testament, look again. While the topic is addressed in numerous passages in the Bible, it's Jesus who talks about it most often. Jesus warned people about hell, not to scare them, but out of love for them. Christians should follow his example 
not denying hell, but teaching the truth about it in love. Ignoring the truth is not loving. Scripture extends the opportunity of grace for every human being's full lifetime. We hear in 2 Peter 3.9 of the Lord's vast patience, where we read, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What we heard in today's gospel reading from Matthew 10 are the words of Christ who died and rose to save us from hell. Faith in him saves, denial of him condemns. And here are those words again, Matthew 10, 32 to 33. And Jesus is stating this clearly. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So what about John 3.16? Everybody's favorite. I bet you can quote this verse from memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now don't stop there. Keep reading the next verses here in context. This is what comes next. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In the words of Luther, we are to love and fear God. We love him for his mercy and grace for who he is, Yet we also stand in awe of the power and of the prospect of condemnation for those who reject the Almighty and his gift of faith. The 20th century theologian Gerhard Ferdi describes the awful choice to turn away from the Lord, to reject him, and he calls it an upward fall. That's an odd phrase. We generally think of falling as a downward motion. But this fall describes how we fail to put God first, honoring him above all. Instead, we, of course, want to put ourselves first. Life becomes all about self, my desires and ideas, my plans and rules. Putting self first in the position where God should be is a rejection of the true God. When we put ourselves on top, we end up worshiping ourselves. We want to be the ones in control. We want to judge according to our standards. Grasping upwards, we seek to make of ourselves God and fall into the sin of rejecting God as the Almighty. This is the ultimate sin. 
all other sin is a symptom of this sickness of self-worship. And we do it to ourselves. Christ comes to save the world from this awful fate. We know God sees our sin in all its ugliness. That should make us tremble. For he condemns the wickedness of human depravity. Our sin earns us death and hell. Understanding the horror of our awful, blackened state should give us a rich understanding of his deep, deep love. Though we are sinners, he willingly endured the cross for us. What a love this is. We worship him for it. We should indeed fear and love God. Holding nothing back in love, our Lord gives everything. The cross is placed across the road to hell as a barrier, promising full forgiveness and embracing love. It tenderly offers salvation to those who cling to it in faith. The arms of Christ stretched out and nailed to rough timbers speak to the breadth of this love. He endures all this so that no one need be condemned, but instead through faith will know life. This wretched scene speaks to how Jesus feels about hell. He will do anything, suffer any anguish to prevent each of us from experiencing the eternal condemnation. We see here Jesus on a rescue mission to save the lost and dying of this world. This is a mission and message that he asks us to share with those who do not yet know him. In this sad and sinful world, we are called to bring his word to touch hearts so that unbelievers come to faith. Christ alone saves. This biblical truth should compel us to witness to others. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Christ says in John 14, 6. When we share the word of Christ, that word we speak can save souls. We all have friends, neighbors, family who need to hear these words. When we speak of the gospel with them, we share life and love. You as a Christian already know the treasure that faith is. You experience God's direction and purpose for your life. You have the assurance of his salvation and eternal blessing. The most important thing you can do for another person is to share his word. Let them hear you say that Jesus is Lord. Let them see you live a consistently Christ-centered life. One of the pithiest Christian quotes from history goes like this. 
Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. There is no doubt that our lives in action should proclaim the gospel. However, we should also be able to articulate the gospel to others verbally. So embrace all the opportunities to share his word. When others observe us, it should not be a secret that we are Christians. We proclaim Jesus with both our mouths and our lives. Amen.